Hi there, my name is Mary Kilolea. Welcome to the To Be Boulder podcast, providing career insights for the next generation of women in business and tech. To Be Boulder was created out of my love for technology and marketing, my desire to bring together like-minded women, and my hope to be a great role model and source of inspiration for my two girls and other young women like you. Encouraging you guys to show up and to be bolder and to know that anything you guys dream of, it's totally possible. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Hi there. Today on the show, I'm delighted to have Deb Arthur joining us. Deb has a very interesting career journey. She has a BA in religion, a master's degree in Black Studies with a focus on African-American children and youth. She earned a law degree as well. So after law, law school, Deb moved to Portland, where she practiced criminal defense and juvenile law for 10 years, specializing in representing juveniles in adult criminal courts. For the past 17 years, she has been teaching at Portland State University. She received the Civic Engagement Award for Excellence in Community-Based Teaching and Learning from the university and was awarded the Campus Compact Western Region Engaged Scholar Award in 2019 for her work bringing college education and support to incarcerated individuals. She is the founder and director of Portland State University's Higher Education in Prison Program at Coffee Creek Correctional Facility. Deb, wow, what a what a great career. It's so interesting ah. to me. I'm excited for this conversation. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love to talk about the work, so I'm excited too. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so let's talk about this, your, your passion. Uh, I mean, looking at your, your resume and the certain jobs that you've held, um, it, it appears that you have a passion for helping others. Um, what drives you? to do the work that you do? Um, you know, I've been asked that question before. I don't, I think it's just how I was made, Mary, <laughs> just how I've always been. I mean, when I was a, a girl, even as a young child, I was really interested in different people's lived experiences. And I think on some level, although I couldn't really understand it intellectually at that time, I think on some level, I recognized that I carried a certain amount of privilege mm-hmm. and, um, and I felt just compelled to sort of try to leverage that privilege to help others who didn't have that same privilege. So I remember, um, I don't know, grade school or middle school doing a report on um, throwaway kids and homeless kids and um, just a topic that fascinated me. I had a home, a family life. You know, I just thought, how, how do kids live that way? And I did some research called the National uh, Runaway Hotline to do some, to ask them some questions. And they in turn turned around and called my mom back on that same phone number and said, I think your daughter's going to run away, uh, uh. <laughs> which I wasn't, but I, you know, I was just like, what, what is this experience like? So I, it's just been, you know, something that, um, that has been a, a continuous motivation for me since I was little. So. So, so the curiosity has always been there from your early studies in religion to, you know, looking at the broader community or diverse segments? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know I would be a religion major in college. Um, I kind of thought I would probably study social sciences. And, um, and then that was a lot of charts and graphs. And I was really more interested in what makes people tick. Like, who, how are we supposed to act in the world based on what we believe? So I, I really was fascinated by the study of different world religions and um, the moral codes attached to those and, you know, how we're supposed to 
act and be in the world, kind of the, the intersection of faith and praxis. What am I supposed to do based on what I believe? So, um, yeah, that was kind of connected to that, to that theme. I love what we're talking about here because so many kids, when, or I call them kids, so many young uh, adults when they're in college are unclear as to, oh, the, the pressures of making and deciding what that degree is going to be in or how I can apply that degree to life. Um, I, I think what you're illustrating is you just aligned yourself with things that meant something to you. And then it, yes. it evolved from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of how I've always operated. I think much to my father's dismay, <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of like, what are you going to do with a degree in religion? You know, um, I, uh, I don't know. I just felt, have always felt really um, that it was really important to follow what it is that moved me. I thought mm-hmm. if I'm doing something I don't even really care about, but I think in the end it's going to pay off in some way. Um, I just thought, I don't know, life is short. You know, I, I want to do what I'm interested in. So I just kind of let that lead me. Was a master's degree um, essential for where you saw yourself going or was it still more part of that self-discovery? It was definitely part of self-discovery. I don't think it was essential, although I'm tremendously grateful I had the opportunity to do that. Um, I was at the Ohio State University, and I um, was one of very few white students in the program. And, um, you know, I, I went there because I I worked for a program in Hartford, Connecticut called Upward Bound. It's actually a national program. There's also one at PSU, actually. Um, but in Hartford, so it's a, it's a college prep program for low-income high school students and first-generation students. And in Hartford, where I was, um, primarily the students enrolled in the program were black and brown and a couple Vietnamese students and a, a very few white students. And and. I worked, that was my first job out of college as a counselor with Upward Bound. And um, I just realized there's so much I didn't know. I was a teaching assistant in some of the classes and I realized there was so much I did not know. And I thought, gosh, I'm a college grad now. I'm a (laughs) smart young woman. And there were all these pieces of history that I wasn't aware of. And it's only because no one taught me about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, African-American history is part of American history. And a lot of it had been left out. And so I thought, I want to know more about this. And um, so I applied for this master's program and got in. I was, uh, I got a fellowship, so it didn't cost me anything. So I thought, I think, um, you know, that was a big part of the decision. Like, wow, let me take a year and go learn something. Um, What a a great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of very intense discussions as one of three white students in the program about what was I doing there and what, you know, it was, I learned a lot and definitely more outside of the classroom than in the classroom. There's a lot of questions that I could go in in that direction, um, but I, I want to focus on your, on your next step, and that is what motivated you to go into law from there? Um, by that time, I was pretty sure I knew I wanted to be a public defender. In fact, I wanted to be a juvenile defender. Um, I wasn't exactly even sure what that was. I remember seeing um, 
Oh, what was that movie? There was a movie that I had seen about young kids that were in detention, which just like horrified me. I thought we lock kids up. We lock kids up. Like I was just horrified. Um, and so, you know, I think that also was part of my, um, my emphasis that I chose for my master's on African-American children and youth, because, you know, unfortunately we know it's true that, um, black and brown kids are definitely overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. And, um, and so the, the master's degree was almost a precursor to law school, knowing that I wanted to focus on being a defense attorney, um, in particular for kids. So, so that stepping back now and going back where you were the minority in your master's program, Mm -hmm. the lessons that you learned from that framed kind of the course in which you looked at life moving forward, correct? Yeah, in many ways. I feel, um, I think it, you know, it definitely helped me do a better job at my work. I don't feel like I could work adequately with um, black and brown people, people, BIPOC, you know, without understanding their Mm -hmm. lived experience. I couldn't just drop in and say, hey, I'm your attorney. Right. Um, let's go and not have any understanding of what their lived experience was. That was really essential. And so I definitely had a taste of that, I'll say. I mean, there's always way more learning to do, but that year was definitely a taste of that. I, I remember in one class in my master's program, um, I was doing, I was, there were two white women in the program and we looked so different. We were very, very different. She was like very visibly anti-establishment, like dreadlocks and, you know, and I was like this preppy girl from Connecticut and, <laughs> and, uh, and I was getting A's in this class and I really enjoyed the class and the faculty always called me the wrong name, the name of the other white woman. And I was like, <laughs> so frustrated. Don't you, I'm like acing this class. I, I, I speak in class. I care about it and you don't know who I am. And it, you know, just having a little taste of what that yeah. felt like, um, you know, some pretty deep learning. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So what was law school like? Uh, law school was hard. Um, the first year I trudged through, to be honest, I mean, just tons of work and not anything I was very interested in. There's a lot of requirements in the first year, you know, property law and civil procedure and things that just you have to get through. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but then, you know, once I got through that, I, um, was able to branch out more into things I was more interested in. So I took like a feminist legal studies course and housing and civil rights. And of course, all the criminal law cases, uh, uh, classes I could get into and, um, participated in a legal clinic and got to do some practical work and things like that. So, I mean, it was, um, three really difficult years of study, but, um, but I, I'm really grateful that I had that experience. Um, what advice would you give someone considering law school or the type of things that they should be asking themselves before taking on that kind of level of commitment? Well, one of the biggest parts of the commitment is the financial commitment. So, you know, even when I talk with students now at PSU, it's like, well, are what are your motivations? Why do you want to go to law school? Is it because you don't know what to do next? Because that's not a good reason to go. Um, you know, and based on the type of work you want to do, it's important to understand 
what the salary may or may not be. I think a lot of people think, oh, you're a lawyer. You must make a ton of money. It just sort of goes hand in hand. But, um, you know, I came out, I was a public defender. Um, I made barely any money and I had huge student loans. So, you know, I think it's just important for people that are considering that to really understand what their motivations are and, you know, look at the type of law they think they might want to do and make sure it's a good investment. So when, when you started being a public defender, what was your inspiration for doing that and how hard was it for you to get that job and what challenges did you face in there? Well, uh, my first public defender job was out here in Portland. At the time, the law firm was called the Juvenile Rights Project. And so I went to law school in Connecticut, and um, that's where I'm from originally. And um, I only took the Oregon Bar because of that law firm, Juvenile Rights Project. It's now called Youth Youth Rights and Justice. It's changed its name. But um, I learned about this law firm they were nationally renowned, only represented children at the time. And I thought, that's where I'm going. That's mm-hmm. what I want to do. And um, and I flew out here, took the Oregon bar, flew back and and uh, got a job at JRP. And, you know, everyone back east was like, no, nobody from University of Connecticut took the Oregon bar. Nobody. <laughs> me. You know, it was like, Oregon, what are you going out there for? Um, but it was because of the Juvenile Rights Project that I moved out here, and, and that was my first public defender job. And I just, it's because I, I mean, I got to represent kids in court who were facing delinquency charges. I mean, that was, that had been my dream, and, mm-hmm. and there I was. So, super cool. What is one of the biggest myths out there for the people that you defend? How are they misunderstood the most? Uh, I think based on media consumption and everything else, we tend to look at people who are locked up, juveniles or adults, and completely disregard them. It does, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and they're bad people. That's mm-hmm. sort of the misperception. These are bad people. Um, with very few exceptions, over the 10 years I practiced law, um, most of the people I represented were very good people. It, it, you know, I, I noticed that right away when I started practicing. It was like, wow, there but for the grace of God, you know, just circumstances, um, lack of um, resources. These are the things that lead people to act out in ways that are not pro-social, right? right. Um, but... Um, but the people themselves were generally really decent people. I, I will say there were a couple exceptions to that over the years that I thought, wow, this one person is someone that I would not want walking around the street, that I wouldn't want to run into or I want my kids to run into. But that was really just a small handful of people. Most people um, that I worked with that were charged with or convicted of um, crimes or juvenile offenses, like really good basically decent human beings that had really poor circumstances. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think most people don't recognize that. We don't, we don't think it all the way through, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. Your job has such a significant impact on the lives of others. What's been the most challenging about that? 
I would say, you know, it's always work, and I tell my students this mm-hmm. too, it's always work to protect myself and keep the boundaries clear. Um, I get, I'm emotionally invested in my work. I mean, those 10 years as a public defender, I didn't have much of a life outside of my work. And, um, and there were days I came home and cried over, you know, some 15 year old kid that was going to prison. Mm. Um, and so it's really hard work, uh, because I do feel passionately about it. And so keeping the boundaries and good self care, you know, is an ongoing lesson for me because, um, because I care, I want to always do that next thing. Okay. I'm the, no one else has time to write that grant. I'm sure I can squeeze it in, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll do it. And, um, you know, that has impacts on myself, my family, you know, it's just, it's really important. It really is important, not just to give lip service, but to really, um, take breaks, keep the boundaries, turn it off. Sometimes go do something completely different. Um, that's been challenging to take good care of myself in the midst of trying to do this work in the world. And that's interesting that you said that because setting boundaries is very difficult for women across, you know, most industries to do mm-hmm. because they're the pleasing attitudes, the, you know, emotional investment. Yeah, that's a tough one. And then, so, I mean, I definitely feel all of that. And then also I'm an Aries and also I'm an eight on the Enneagram. It's like, come on, let's get it done. You know, so like stepping back is something I continue to learn about. Over the years, have you ever experienced self-doubt? And if so, how did you quiet those voices to forge forward? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've, I've experienced self-doubt. Like, I don't think I would be human if, if I hadn't. Yeah. Um, and I, um, how do I conquer that? I mean, I think I really believe in just doing the next right thing. So sometimes mm-hmm. the self-doubt, you know, it, it creeps in when I look at the big picture and it's like, how am I going to get from here to there? I don't know. Um, and so developing a practice of pulling it in and just looking at that one little next thing that I can do, like I'm not a huge fan of this little saying, but you've probably heard it, you know, how what's the best way to eat an elephant one bite bite at a time. time. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, sometimes I, I, I have a vision and it's really big and I want to get there and I have to, and then the self doubt creeps in. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get there. So just pulling in and doing the next right thing in front of me to do. And then I'm just that little bit closer. I think that's been the way I've tried to counter that. That's really good advice. Um, what are you most proud of when you look back on your career? Um, you know, honestly, I would say that's that's more recent. Um, I've, over the past several years, been working at PSU to develop this uh, higher education and prison program, and we are developing a degree pathway in liberal studies at Coffee Creek Correctional, which is um, in Wilsonville, and it's Oregon's only women's prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the men in Oregon's prisons have had access to credit-bearing degree-granting education for years. And, you know, there's not enough of it, and not every uh, male in prison has had that opportunity. But the women haven't had the opportunity at all. Wow. And, uh, yeah, a little bit shocking. And, you know, they get occasional class here or there, like an upper division class that someone decides to offer 
um, in, in kind of an inside out format where um, outside college students come into the prison. And, you know, so there's a little bit of that and there's, you know, definitely adult basic ed, GED, um, career and technical stuff. But there's been no higher ed access and um, in terms of credit bearing degree granting. And you know what, Mary, I just put my head down. I said, this is, I'm making this happen. Wow. <laughs> and, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that is really what I feel most proud of because so now we have 35 students in the program. We have two different cohorts. Um, and to read the papers that these students write, I mean, I'm just floored. They're most of them super smart. Um, I mean, we're reading Plato. We're reading um, um, Paulo Freire. Um, we're reading some, you know, pretty intense readings. And um, their their eyes are opening up and their worlds are opening up. Mm. And uh, wow, it's such a thrill. That's amazing. So how did you, okay, so you say I have this vision because I see this um, lack of resource and this inequity happening here in the prison system, mm-hmm. especially for women. Where do you start? Do you go, I'm going to evaluate my resources and my connections and then step one, step two, you know, like, how does that happen? Persistence. I mean, I I tend to operate more on, um, you know, I've been accused of being a freight train. I mean, I just kind of (laughs) go, (laughs) doesn't always work so well in my personal life. (laughs) But, um, you know, I saw this need, I I met up with someone who did similar work in the institution on a, um, community college level, I said, what would this look like? Mm. They said, oh, like maybe a 2023 start. And I said, no, this September. Mm. Um, You know, I went to the folks I know at PSU, my direct boss at the time, the the director of our program, I said, we need to do this. Pell, Pell grants are coming back. There's a need that isn't being met. Like, I basically nagged until I was finally told, okay, okay, go ahead and do it. Teach a class there. Let's do one class, pilot, see how it goes. You can do it this time. You, we're not going to pay. There's no, there's no money. You can't do it again. Go find yourself some money, but do it. And so I, I taught a, uh, that last year was the pilot year, 1920 academic year. I taught a 15 credit first year interdisciplinary general ed class and we were off and running. I, I did get a grant um, to continue classes for the next couple of years. Um, we constantly hustle for scholarship support for students, um, but it's happening. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so I kind of did it backwards. Like I started and then I went, oh, we better figure out how we're going to keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> However you get it done, right? Right, exactly. That is that's really so something to be proud of. Um, congratulations on that. Um, Thanks. So, what would you tell your twenty-year-old self um, if you could have a conversation with you back then? I would tell myself, um, "Girlfriend, you are already capable." Mm. I think a lot of us tend to. It's just sort of we're sort of programmed to wait till we're prepared, right? <laughs> You know, and I tell my students this all the time, like, 
none of us are prepared. None of us know what we're doing. We're all doing the best we can. Like we, you learn more by experience. The longer I do something, obviously, the better I get at it. But you have to start and you're already capable of starting. Um, you know, I d- young people, even I had a, a nephew who had just turned 13 and his mom had asked me to write him some advice. I said, you're already ready. Get involved. Um, and I think I... I didn't fully understand that myself at that time. I was kind of like, well, let me get this done. Let me get that done. Let me prepare, um, you know, all the nerves that go along with not being ready. Um, I would say just let go of those because you're already ready. That's how you learn. I I totally agree. And um, she probably won't like this, but I'll mention my daughter, you know, sometimes it's like she's waiting for an invitation and I'm like, you want to do it, just go do it. Don't mm-hmm. let anyone, don't wait for someone to give you an invitation to do something you already want to do. Make it happen for yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And somehow we're taught, and I'm not sure if it's, it says women, that we have to um, make sure everything's lined up right. and, and maybe wait for that invitation. And like, that's not coming, you know, you, and we're never going to have everything lined up. We're human. So just go, just go for it. Well, and, and, you know, I hear it a lot at work because um, I'm in the corporate world, but, f- you know, failing fast or failing forward is encouraged, which I, I'm so happy to hear that because I didn't get that growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's such a great lesson. Like, okay, try it. It doesn't work out. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off and try something new and take away your learnings and move forward. Exactly. Yep. It's all just Keep putting one foot in front of the other. What, what's your favorite thing about teaching? I would say I kind of look at it a little bit differently, teaching students um, on the PSU campus versus the teaching I do inside incarceration mm. facilities. Um, mm-hmm. On the PSU campus, what I love about it is um, getting to share my passion with other students. I mean, this is this is the front line coming up. These are the folks that are going to go out and do the work and um, being able to, I really love being able to um, connect students with maybe job shadows or, you know, most of the students that end up in my classes tend to have some sort of interest in, um, you know, the field of criminal justice or um, social work, child and family studies, that kind of thing. And, just over my career, I've built so many connections. So I can say, well, hey, you should talk to this person who does X, Y, or Z. I mean, um, making it real practical mm-hmm. for students, I love that part. Like, Because um, most of the students I, I teach on the PSU campus are seniors, and they're starting to look at what am I going to do next. Um, so, you know, all my teaching has been community-based. So students are already engaged in the community on some kind of project. But I love making those extra connections for people um, because that's what they're super hungry for. Like, they're about to finish, and they don't know what they're going to do next. And I enjoy that part. And then teaching in the prison is just, um, wow, it's just uh, what a privilege because, um, you know, these are students who thought maybe they weren't going to have another chance to get an education and um, they're hungry for it and they're uh, really hardworking and um, I learn a lot from them and it's just such a rich learning community. I'm, you know, I haven't been inside since last March. Um, We've been able to, yeah, super sad. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that we can get back in soon, but 
Um, but we still, I mean, we're still going, but I haven't been able to be in person and that's, that makes me sad, but we'll, we'll get there. What was your uh, best piece of career advice that you've received? You know, um, the, when I had, had the period between practicing law and teaching, I, kind of, I was practiced law for 10 years and I kind of knew I was going to need to move on because I was burning out. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I love the work, I thought, well, eventually I'm going to have to have some kind of life. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought, what else would I do? And I had no idea. I really didn't know. I started to have um, set up lunch dates with people who I thought did interesting things and like really tried to think about what would next steps be. And in, in the course of that sort of um, exploration, I came across this book on the shelf by a guy named Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak. And the title is basically an old Quaker saying, um, but that book really was all the career advice I ever needed. Um, I highly recommend it. I recommend it to all my students. Um, So Parker Palmer talks about that vocation is a gift, not a goal. And the basic idea is like, take your ego out of it stop thinking about what I think I want to accomplish. Um, but instead like really learn to listen deeply. And, um, I already know inside what I'm here to do. And so that's the best advice I've ever received or could give because as long as I keep my ego out of it and keep just trying to fulfill this purpose that, that I feel inside of me, I, I'm, I know I'm going in the right direction. That's fabulous. Um, I ask everyone this, what does to be bolder mean to you? Um, You know, Mary, I just love what you're doing. I I think it's so important to get women's voices out there, um, learn about each other, connect with each other, um, share stories. Um, You know, yesterday was International Women's Day, choose to challenge uh, the theme for this year. And I, I just think, you know, I've listened to a bunch of the episodes and you know, it's, it's just been, helps me feel like I'm not alone in these struggles that I face that, you know, there's a lot of similarities that, um, we come across, I can learn tips and, um, yeah, it's just a beautiful thing that you're doing. Thank you. I, I, I love what I'm doing. And just to your point earlier is put your ego aside and just do what excites you and what, um, motivates you and, and bringing women like you who are more than willing to take time out of their, your busy lives and share your story and your lessons. And, and because so many kids or younger people, even pivoting mid-career, don't know what they don't know. They don't know their options. You know, it's like having a conversation with someone that you wouldn't have had access to. So I, I'm delighted that I can be a part of that. Yeah, it's really fantastic. So what's, uh, what does to be bolder mean to you? You know, it's funny, Mary, in putting all this program together, I've been doing things I never knew I would do. I mean, I just, I was a lawyer and then I was a teacher mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I'm knocking on Dean's doors. I'm writing grant proposals. I'm giving legislative testimony on the issues that relate to the work that I'm doing. I'm having meetings with prison officials. Um, I, you know, I have had to train myself to just hit the send button. You know, I'll read over an yes. email to someone who in my mind is important, yes. you know, because that's how the world deems them. Right. And I think, oh, gosh, 
who am I to be writing this? You know, still yes. these thoughts will go through my mind, right? Like, sh- I shouldn't, like, they don't care who I, or how should I, and I just, <laughs> just send it, you know? And um, I'm learning how to do that. I guess that's to be bolder. I'm definitely doing that and good things are coming. That's exactly what to, to be bolder is. That's fantastic. Um, Yay. What's next for you? I want to keep building this program out, keep pulling the money in, um, Pell grants for people who are incarcerated um, were recently restored. There used to be college and prison programs everywhere. It's what you did when you went to prison, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the early 90s in the uh, Clinton crime bill, Pell grant eligibility was ended for people in custody and all these college and prison programs shut down um, in the early 90s. And so in arguably the best news of 2020, Pell grants were restored Mm -hmm. in um, you know, it'll take a couple of years to implement that, but um, I want to keep building out this program. And then, you know, with Pell coming back, a lot of the financial burdens will be eased because students can pay for their tuition with these grants. And um, and then I want to really develop the on-campus aspect of it too, because it's one thing to to offer education inside. It's important and fun and um, makes everyone the better, makes the community safer. But at the same time, we've got to be there for those same students when they get out. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of turning a bit to look at also developing resources um, on the PSU campus for formerly incarcerated students. Um, it's a definitely a, a very particular type of lived experience and not everyone's anxious to share about it. And coming back into the community and trying to continue your education when you haven't ever used a laptop or a, or a a smartphone Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's challenging. Um, so, you know, just continuing to pour into this work and the program and making it bigger and stronger. Um, that's kind of what I'm looking at for the next few years. I love it. You know, just a a short time ago, you were looking at how to, to get students to be students. And now you're thinking post-graduation. Yeah. Yeah. It's (laughs) right. And even people who, you know, with COVID and and other things going on, um, I've had a number of students from our program release um, early due for medical reasons or for, you know, clemency or, um, you know, just getting their sentence, they're shortened. And Mm -hmm. so, then they get a hold of me at my PSU. Hey, Deb, <laughs> I'm out. What do I do now? You know, so now I'm also now a student advisor. And you know, so those are the resources that we need to have to be ready yeah. for people. It's you can't just go in and and leave. Right. Right. So I'm committed to seeing it through. Well, thank you for the work that you do the lives that you impact, um, and for joining us today. I super appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, how can someone connect with you? My contact info is is on the PSU. You know, you could go to PSU and put in Deborah Arthur, and all my contact information is there. And um, happy to talk with people who are interested in this work. And thank you so much for having me. Like, it's just great to 
talk about this work and to be part of this um, movement that you're building where women are supporting each other. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the episode today. It was really fun chatting with my guest. If you liked our show, please like it and share it with your friends. If you want to learn what we're up to, please go check out our website at 2bbolder.com. That's the number two, little b, boulder.com.